So from 28 to 30, I did the exercise thing and explored what it meant to have a body. And then for some reason I realized I also had a mind connected to the body as well. So I decided to meditate. Not any particular kind of meditation, but just meditation, cultivate the mind. So I decided to find a meditation center. And I, I got the phone book and got the yellow pages, and they actually had meditation centers in the yellow pages, when they had yellow pages and phone books. And this was the place I came to. I came here like 1979. Here. Right here. And it hasn't changed at all. Only the people that come here change. This place pretty much stays the same. And I started to meditate, and it was really, really difficult, because it's really, really boring. And I couldn't figure out why, what it would lead to, other than, you know, sleep. So I just, I kept coming, but there was a guy here who would give these Dharma talks, who would talk about Buddhism, and it just fascinated me, how, how he could see things so differently from the way I saw them, and how it made sense to them and made no sense to me at that point. And I figured if, if I kept meditating, I would understand what he was talking about and I could see the world in a different way too. And it's, it started to happen. So I, I kept meditating. I kept coming here to listen to his talks. And then one day I decided I was going to get rid of all my polyester shirts with the flowers and have cotton. And I decided I was going to stop blow drying my hair and using hairspray and just go natural. And then I decided to watch PBS, Public Broadcasting. And that was really difficult because they had no commercials, so you had to really focus a long time. And gradually, I went from being sort of a Republican guy to a Democratic guy to an independent guy. I went from synthetic material to all cotton and wool. I went from fast food to, you know, slow cooking and nutritious. And I just started to see the world in a much different way over a period of years. And, and all the while thinking, well, I'm over 30 now, so I'm going to be dead soon. I should get a, a religion so I could die well. And so the book that you read, the Houston Smith book, I read that book. And the chapter on Buddhism made so much sense because for me, it meant that I didn't have to believe in anything. Because, see, I had a problem with belief, you know? And it may sound funny, but, you know, for a long time, I didn't believe in Australia. You know, I had seen the map, but it's a piece of paper with lines drawn. I knew people spoke funny when they came from Australia, but I thought it could be a speech impediment. I wasn't convinced that it really existed until I went there. And when I went to Australia... I said, now I don't have to believe it. Now I have confidence that it does exist. And so that's how Buddhism allowed me to pick it as a religion because the Buddha in one of the sutras said, don't believe it because I say it to be true. Don't believe it because the elders tell you it's true. Don't believe it because it's written down. But believe it because you've tested it. And in your testing, you have proven it to be true to you. And when I looked at Christianity, Judaism, or Islam, I realized it always ended up with faith. It seemed to sidestep confidence. But for me, Buddhism said, okay, one, two, three, is it working? One, two, three, is it working? So month after month, year after year, meditation, reading, listening to the Dharma talks, it finally started to give me the confidence I needed to say, yes, I can understand how Buddhism can help me 
end my suffering and end all my future rebirths. So, now, did I want to become ordained? I didn't really want to become ordained. Because you're a monk and you can't have a girlfriend, and I sort of liked having girlfriends. And so, my teacher said, well, you know, here you are, you're in your 40s, you don't have much going on in your life, why don't you try being a monk? (laughs) So, I said, okay, well, maybe I'll just give it a try, you know. So, to be a monk at, at, at this center, it takes nine years. So for nine years, I was giving it a try. And, and at the end of nine years, I said, yeah, you know, it might be a nice way to, to end a life. You know, because the first half of my life, I was working, I had girlfriends, I had fun, I had polyester. The second half of my life, you know, I had a chance not to work, had a chance to think about a lot of stuff I didn't have time to think about before. I had a chance to have a lifestyle that required me to be present and accounted for. And 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 I and all those things made me happy in my choice to become a monk. But initially, I saw all the worst parts about being a monk, all the things you couldn't do. But in not doing all those things, it gives you time to do other things. It gives you a place not to be distracted by the flash and the trash of L.A., but to just focus in on what's important and, and perhaps even come to the meaning of life. You know, and if you don't come to the meaning of life, perhaps how to die well. Something we all have to do. Did that make sense, Soda? Yeah, yeah, good. Okay, thanks for the question. So now, how did my parents feel about it? You know, well, my father he he had a German background, and he was a German Lutheran, and he was really conservative, and he knew I was going to hell. And it made him sad, uh, so we didn't talk about uh, Buddhism, we talked about baseball and stuff like that. And my mom, who was non-religious and always the religion of her husband, she was married twice and she married my dad, Lutheran, her second husband was Episcopalian, so she became an Episcopalian. She was happy because I was happy. And that's what I like about moms. Dads are a little different, you know, but mom said, as long as you're happy, I'm happy. So, so, and then my brothers and sisters, they could care less. They're brothers and sisters, you know. <laughs> so, it, it doesn't matter what we do, you know. They're not going to like it or dislike it. Yeah. Good. Did you get the call? Did you find them? Yeah, I think they were in North New Hampshire, so now they're heading south. Oh, okay, so they really missed it by a, yeah, a, a lot. Yeah, okay. They're about 15 minutes away. Okay. Are, are they are they making the walk? Yeah, they think they know where they're going now. Okay, don't we all? You know. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, so then uh, the Buddha said in his first talk, you know, that it's really birth, sickness, old age, and death. But not only that, uh, there are people in this world that we don't like, and places in this world that we don't want to be in. And we're around those people and in those places, and there's no way to get out of that. And he said, everything that we really like and enjoy and want to hold on to in life will be taken away from us. And the culprit is impermanence and change. Nothing stays the same longer than a moment. So if you attach to anything and really like the way it looks or is right now, in the next moment you'll be disappointed because it'll be different. So he just painted this bleak picture of life. Then he said, I have un- I've come to understand that desire and craving is the, is, is the seed of our 
of our suffering. It's the core. It's the reason. And if we can get rid of our desire and our attachment and our thirst, we'll never have to suffer again. And that's what he found in nirvana. Nirvana is the end of desire and craving, therefore the end of suffering. It's also the end of karma, and it's also the end of all future rebirths, which is not really exciting for most people, because most people would rather exist as something than not exist at all. And that really bothered me for a long time, too. Why? Why would nirvana end our existence? And, and so this is according to me. I'll give you my take on it. That what the Buddha came to understand was this, that everything in this world is here because of creation. Now, see, as a Buddhist, we don't go into what the first cause. You know, it, it, God could be the first cause. It could be the Big Bang Theory. It could be the flying spaghetti monster. We're not sure. And so the first cause isn't a big issue for us. You know, we're here. How it all started isn't going to change what's happening right now. But because it was created, it has to end. Everything that's created has to end. So this world, this, this solar system, this whatever, everything has to come to an end sooner or later. The Buddha, in his quest to end suffering, figured out a way to exist without being born. Figure it out a way to exist without creation. And that's, so he exists right now today, I think in maybe like this parallel universe called Nirvana. And he's there not because he was born into it, he's there because he realized his Nirvana. Interesting, huh? And Nirvana is unborn and undying, and it doesn't include suffering. It doesn't include suffering. So, is that a big sell in Buddhism? No, you know, people aren't excited about that. They don't want to exist in nirvana in a parallel universe and not suffer. I think the biggest sell in Buddhism is, is the way it all starts. Uh, when the Buddhist monk says, I can teach you how to be happy. And they people, I want to be happy, I want to be happy. So there's a lot of things in Buddhism that make you happy. In spite of all the suffering, and the, the, the demise, eventual demise of everything in the universe. There's a lot of stuff in Buddhism that makes you happy. So that sort of gets you started. And then you're in Buddhism for a while. And then, then the real stuff starts to come. The monk says, you know, not only, not only can I tell you how to be happy, I can tell you how not to suffer. And usually if you get to be 40 or 50, happiness goes on the back burner and not suffering is what you worry about. Because your body starts to disintegrate, your mind starts to be forgetful. All the potential of your life now has been realized. Like, after a certain age, you can't be a fireman anymore. Really a bummer, you know? So here you are at 20, oh, I wish I could be a fireman. And at 40, they won't even hire you. And you go, okay. So as we progress through our life, all our potential diminishes into realization. And finally, at the end of our life, the only thing we have the potential to do is to die. And that's when we come to our full realization. However limited it is, because it includes death. But the Buddha became fully realized at 35. He didn't wait to die to be fully realized. He became fully realized at 35. And saw the world in a rather unique way. And he also transitioned, not from earth to heaven, but transitioned from samsara to nirvana. 
Samsara being earth, where we are. Samsara means the place where birth and death occurs. So this planet is here for only one reason, birth and death. And we just saw it today. We've got little birds out there having little babies and chasing the cat away and all that kind of stuff, you know? That's the birth part. And then the cat catches the little baby and kills it. That's the death part. And that scenario goes on all the time, everywhere on earth. It can be really sad, if you think about it. The birth part might be good, but then you think all those new little things that were born are going born to die. And you go, why are they born to die? And a gnat may only have an existence of a day or two. <laughs> have a good day. Oh, I will. Thank you. And then they're dead. And you go, wow. So, we call this samsara, and we, we look at samsara as being a problem, and we look at nirvana as being the answer. So we have nirvana and samsara. So far, so good? Have Anybody want to be a Buddhist yet? Not yet? Okay. Yes. Um, can you talk about the end of desire yeah. and attachment with nirvana and how that works? Yeah, it's hard because I, I, I haven't got there yet. Okay. I can't imagine I can't imagine getting up in the morning without a desire to get up. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like why would I get up if I don't have a desire to get up? Yeah. So how does that work then? So the Buddha when he became fully realized or reached nirvana and lived after that, did he still have desires? Did he still experience suffering? He didn't experience suffering. He still experienced pain. So there's a difference between pain and suffering. Mm. They say pain is not optional. Uh, and there are certain sutras, he's talking where he's an old man now, he's in his 80s, and he has to rest because his back hurts and his legs are tired. And I'm thinking, wow, that is so real. And yet, he didn't suffer because of that. So what is suffering? You know, uh, There was this girl in seventh grade, her name was Esmeralda, and I was giving a talk at her class on Buddhist history. And she said, at the end of my talk, I now realize the difference between pain and suffering. Suffering happens when you don't want to have the pain. So you see, if we can't come to a profound acceptance of the way things are, we will suffer. And most of the time, during the day, we come to the conclusion it could be better. Or it could be worse, too. You know, But very rarely do we see the perfection of the present moment we find ourselves in. So the Buddha was able to do that. He, I'm thinking one of the reasons that kept him motivated and, and working until he was 80 was the suffering of others. That he had ended his own suffering, and if he had just been concerned about his own suffering, that would have been the end of the story. But for 45 years, he taught everyone else who wanted to hear or who would listen how they could end their suffering. So I'm thinking there was this sort of altruistic aspect in him that said, you know, as long as there's one person suffering, I got something to do. So he got up early every day and went to sleep late every night and was able to, in a small way, help people. Some people achieve nirvana, some people be happy, and some people end their suffering through his teachings and what he had come to understand to be true. That makes sense, sort of? Mm -hmm. uh, it's hard to get specific because he... If you're not, for instance, nirvana, uh, they, they always asked him, what is nirvana? What is nirvana? And he would always tell them what it isn't. 
So he might say, well, what do you think nirvana is? And the person would say, I think it's blah, blah, blah. And he would say, no, it's not that. And then the person would say, blah, blah, blah. And he would say, no, it's not that. And then he would go on. And finally, the person gave up and said, you know, I've said, I've told you everything I think it could be. And he would say, the one thing you didn't say is what it is. That's what nirvana is. So he always told you what it wasn't. He never told you what it was. Uh, if you've never been to New York and the furthest you've gotten is Chicago, you could stand in Chicago and tell people what you think New York is like. And even how they might get there, according to you who, who have never been there. So if you ask anybody about nirvana who hasn't achieved nirvana, you're going to get that Chicago state of mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I, I don't know. I don't, you know, I, I sometimes imagine what it could be. I sometimes try to think how he could have existed without any desire and had a full life like that. And I, it's, I always get stuck because desire always enters into the picture for me. You know, uh, even the desire to achieve nirvana. That desire to achieve nirvana prevents you from achieving nirvana. So you have to get rid of the desire to achieve nirvana in order to get nirvana. Then, it gets even weirder than that. Then it says, there is no place where nirvana exists. You are already there. It's just you can't realize it because you're deluded and ignorant. And you need to get rid of your delusion and ignorance to realize you're already there. So it'd be like us sitting here saying, I I wonder what it's like in Los Angeles. Wouldn't it be cool to be in L.A.? And of course, here we all are. But we're ignorant into thinking that L.A. is not this, it is something else. And then one day we wake up and say, you know what, I've always been in L.A. Why did I think I had to get there? when it's always been a part of me. So, so I always smile when people say I'm going to India to get enlightened. And I'm thinking, well, you could do it in Pacoima, too. Or Woodland Hills, you know, it's okay, you know. But they get the plane ticket, they go to the ashram, they eat vegetarian, they see the guru, and then they come back and said, you know, I'm not enlightened, but it was a great trip, you know. So it's sort of like that, I guess. Are there any current... Buddhist monks who claim that they've reached nirvana? There aren't monks that I've heard of that claim nirvana, but there are lay people who practicing Buddhism who might claim enlightenment. Mm-hmm. And, and if you claim enlightenment, you're probably not. You probably uh, have become psychotic with too much meditation. Mm-hmm. And, and that can be a big issue. I mean, how do you know? You know? And, and, and they say there are tests that allow you to measure or gauge your place along the path. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but you need a qualified teacher to decipher the test as well as the answers to the test. So I've often thought it's probably better not even to think about it. It's probably just better to wake up every day, do your practice, live your life, and then one day it happens. But if you're just so eager for it to happen and can only think about it happening, you're probably postponing it happening for a long, long time. So how do you do something and not be connected to the outcome? How do you run a race and, and not think about the finish line? Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like that. At some point, you just get there. And, and that's probably when you're the closest, when you're not even thinking about it. wish I could be more specific. But see, this stuff is paradoxical. There's, it, it, it just, there's no right or wrong with this stuff. It's all gray. 
And it all depends on what you hear and what experience you've had as to how deep you can understand it. And there are some people who hear it one time and know exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And there are other people who hear it a thousand times and still go, what? And so I was one of those what people when I started, because I couldn't hear anything. Mm-hmm. They had to yell at me, you know, and, and not really, but in the figurative, and they had to just, you know, just yell at me so I could hear just a little bit, because I was so blind and deaf to the truth they were speaking. And then as I continued to meditate, it started to make more and more sense all the time. Then it comes to me. Now I'm in the business of sharing what I know. So how do I say it in a way that people can understand it? So you spend 20 years getting it in your head, and the next 20 years is getting it out of your head in an understandable way. So there's a lot of skill and practice that goes into this. I suppose it's like being a teacher, too. You know, you go to school and you learn all this stuff, and now you've got to teach everybody what you know. Well, how do you say it so they hear it? How do you put it into an understandable paradigm or model that can be easily accessed by someone who has zero knowledge on the topic or subject? And that's the skill of the teacher. And so apparently the Buddha was just amazing at this. He would say it. People would listen to him once and become enlightened. They, 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 it just... He was able to give them the pieces that were missing in their model in one talk, and they became enlightened. You go, wow. You know, that must have been an amazing uh, event. Here, 2015, after all the centuries of talking and listening and revisioning and talking again, it, a lot of the teachings have been diluted. You know, they're just, it's, it's, they're not as strong as they used to be. So, you have all these people telling you what they think about the Dharma, what they think Buddhism is. Dharma, teachings of the Buddha, or ultimate truth. For a Buddhist, both, actually. Mm -hmm. And so what you're hearing is what they think. And you go, okay, so that's what they think. But now what did the Buddha say? So then you get into, well, this is what the Buddha said in, in the sutras. 100 books of what the Buddha said. So you got that going. Then you start to say, well, how do I understand what the Buddha said? Not how do I understand what the teacher said or why the teacher said it, but how do I understand what the Buddha said? That And it's been translated now from Pali, the canonical language of early Buddhism, into English. You know, And then you say, well, maybe if I learn Pali, you know, then, then I'll know exactly what he said. And, and so for like a year and a half, I took Pali so I could figure out, and it was just, it's a, just really a basic language. There's no, it's not fun at all, you know. There's, there's, there's not a lot of stuff in the middle. It's like the cat died. And then, and we would say the, and they'd just say cat died, mm-hmm. you know, and they, so they leave out a lot of stuff. It was an ancient language. And blah, blah, blah. So what happens now is your practice helps you define what you've come to understand the Buddha said, and your practice ultimately helps you define your truth. So we all have our own truth with a small t, and we have the capital truth of the Dharma, the Buddha. And and what is the relationship between the big T and the small t? How, how, how is my truth different from the truth of the Buddha? And if it is different, what do I need to do to make it parallel, to make it uniform? And, and so that's where your practice comes in. And you practice for five years, ten years, twenty years, all this time, you know.
And then at the end of your life, are you there? You know, and, and a lot of people aren't. So we have heaven in Buddhism. We have 30 heavens and 30 hells. So even if you don't achieve nirvana in this lifetime, at least you get a nice place to go for a while. But see, our heavens are not forever. Our heavens are temporary. A couple hundred thousand human lifetimes long, but still temporary. Then you're reborn. That's why for a Buddhist, even going to heaven is not ultimately without suffering. Because you're going to suffer when you have to leave. The, the gatekeeper comes and says, your karma is gone. The karma that puts you here has worn out. Heaven is so nice, you haven't created any more karma for yourself. you got to leave. And you just probably cringe at the thought of having to go back to samsara, this planet Earth where all this suffering is happening. Or even a lower heaven, or even the hell realms. So many places you, you might end up. Uh, so for a Buddhist, being a human being is the best place you can be because the Dharma is here, teachings of the Buddha. You have a chance to end all future rebirths and your suffering forever. Uh, in heaven, it's too nice. You don't do any practice at all. In hell, it's too bad and too fierce and too much suffering and you can't practice. So this is a nice balance, this place called samsara. Uh, it's an interesting path, and many have chosen it. Um, and I think they choose it because they have a say in, a, in, in, in how to do it and what they're looking for. So some people look at nirvana as being unattainable, and they, and they choose to go to heaven, and they have certain practices to go to heaven. Some people have chosen to come back time and time again as a bodhisattva, a Buddhist saint, on earth, to save all sentient beings. And when the last sentient being is saved, then they will accept their nirvana. Some Buddhists have chosen to go to hell realm as a bodhisattva and help all beings in hell where they're really suffering, which takes a great amount of compassion to dedicate yourself to hell, to help other sentient beings. So there, there are uh, many places we can go, many outcomes to this practice. And, and along the way, you pretty much decide uh, what you want to do. Now, in my own case, I wanted nirvana. I thought I'd become an arhant. I thought after a good 10 or 20 years of hard practice, I could do it. And the phone kept ringing, asking if I could help. Can you help? And so I, for a year, I was at um, uh, California State Prison for Men as a volunteer. For five years, I was at Central Juvenile Hall as a volunteer. For 12 years, I was at UCLA as a chaplain, and we started a Buddhist club. Uh, for seven years, I was at uh, in Garden Grove as a volunteer police chaplain. And now I'm at Cedar sinai in the Spiritual Care Committee, giving presentations to new chaplains on Buddhist patient care and end-of-life issues. Can you help well, no, I want to become an arhant. I want to achieve nirvana. And if I have to help everybody, I'll just be a bodhisattva and I'll never be achieve nirvana. And, okay, I'll be there Tuesday. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so 20 years later, you know, a lot of community service, a lot of merit has been acquired. But I've also had to put the fierce practice of the arhant, of achieving nirvana, on the back burner while I help dissentient beings who are suffering. At one point, we had 13 feral cats in the backyard. They kept finding us. So I helped, had people uh, donate cat food. We've had them live and die. We got them fixed. You know, and uh, 
And so you go, wow, when does it end? Well, it doesn't end. A time will never come when no one is suffering on the earth. A time will never come. So if you choose to be of service to all sentient beings, you will be busy until you die. So, uh, yeah. Is that helpful? Is that similar to Christianity? Not really. I see some similarities. Okay. There's a lot of things that are different just foundationally, so it's hard to compare them. It is. It's like apples and oranges, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So, so one is not better than the other. For me, one is just different. Mm-hmm. And, and they both work. They both work. But some people hear one teaching, some people hear another teaching. Some people are deaf. So I'm, I am deaf to, you know, uh, to the Christian teaching of, of God and salvation. I can't hear that. You know, and if I was to go into a deep state of meditation and God were to be there, it would freak me out. So far, nothing's there and I feel very comfortable. But if you're a Christian and you go into this deep state and God isn't there, it would freak you out too, more than likely. So the Buddhist would be comfortable, the Christian would be freaking out, and then vice versa. So it's nice that those two things are available, that we don't all have to be something that we're not. We can all be who we need to be. And we can find our salvation in our own personal way. And so that's how I sort of look at it. And, and I think as, we, as you do urban studies, and you see the diversity of the urban environment, you know, between uh, ethnic and religious and food consumption. Everybody likes to eat different stuff. And you just look at this and you go, wow, is any of, are any of them right? Are any of them... And, and you have to sort of come, at least I came to the conclusion, that they're right in their own way for their life, for their lifestyle. They have chosen to do this and eat this and believe this. And, and, and fine, and can we all live together with all this diversity? And for some religions it's hard. Because for some religions we say, well, there's only one way. And, and yet there are all these other people doing it another way. And you go, how am I going to, you know, reconcile? And, and for a Buddhist, what they would say is this, that, that we don't have oneness at all. We don't have oneness. There's, there's no one this and, and, and the rest is not. What we have instead is we have unity. We have unity that is connected either through common purpose or, or faith or insight or breath, whatever connects us. And, and this unity creates community and allows diversity to prosper. And, and if we have to get rid of everything that doesn't fit, and you know, politically, leaders throughout the history of the world have tried that. Hitler and his Pol Pot and we just have to get rid of all the people that don't fit in and then we'll have a perfect place, you know? Mm. You never can get rid of everybody. There's always somebody you missed. <laughs> and that just blows the whole deal. So then you go, well, maybe how are we connected? If, if, if we're all here anyway, what connects all of us? And, and could you say God? Well, God connects a lot of people, but not everybody. Could you say taxes? Maybe. But a lot of people don't pay taxes. Could you say food? Well, a lot of people don't have enough to eat, but we all like to eat. So you start looking at ways that we're connected, and, and, and you come to this place of finding 
humanity in its all its many manifestations being exactly perfect in the way they're manifesting. And they're all connected with each other. So for a Buddhist, we come to this ultimate place of understanding in the world that all things are interconnected and interdependent and do not exist apart from conditions. Do not exist apart from conditions. So, so none of us can stand alone in, on the top of the hill and saying, look at me and look at them. It's always look at us because we're always connected. And that reality, when it becomes a personal experience, forces you to go into the world and act in, and experience it in a different way. And generally speaking, from a Buddhist perspective, it would be one of compassion and wisdom, insight, clarity, and kindness. And, you, and you'd see that if there's one person who's hungry, there's a part of you that's hungry. If one person is homeless, there's a part of you that's homeless. And it goes on and on and on. And, and that humanity, you know, becomes sort of what you experience. And then you die. <laughs> it always ends that way. You know, no matter how good you are and how much you've come to understand to be true, 